Welcome to the Value Investor TV podcast. This is the podcast that helps you grow your wealth and become financially independent. My name is Becco and my partner, Hari. Hello. This is part two of Stamps.com. Glad uh, you guys are here with us. Uh, as we talked about in the last episode, Stamps.com is one of the, episode, one of the um, companies that one of our listeners suggested us look at. Uh, and if you guys have a, a company that you want us to look at, please feel free to email us at info at valueinvestor.org. So this is part two. Uh, as we always do, we go through a checklist. Um, if you don't have a copy of our checklist, please email us also at info at valueinvestor.org if you would like a copy. So part two, usually we cover the financial, the management, and then finally we, we talk about the valuation, the intrinsic value we cover in this episode. So we'll talk about that, all of that for stamps.com in this episode. Before we do that, uh, Hari, give us a quick disclaimer, please. Yeah, this is the Value Investor TV podcast. We are a podcast that uh, educates you on the concepts behind value investing. Uh, we don't know your specific financial situation, nor are we your financial advisors. So please consult with the appropriate advisor before making any uh, financial decisions. Great. Uh, let's get right to it. So the first question, stamps.com does... Is the company able to translate its moat into high returns on capital? And uh, before you do that, if you could quickly just recap the competitive advantage that we talked about in the previous episode, Ari. Yeah, so when we looked at them, you know, I, I think what we saw was that they are a business that has relatively high switching costs, um, you know, from going from one kind of provider to another. Um, you integrate your business, your e-commerce platform, your... Uh, small business that's shipping out mailers, you know, that's the kind of thing that it may be a big part of your business, but you don't have a lot of time or money to, um, to spend on it. So you use, you integrate with them once and then you use it on a day-to-day -day basis to, to do what you need to do for your marketing campaigns, mailers, you know, uh, shipping your packages and so forth. So I think the, the big thing here about stamps is that because they have, you know, they have a good brand presence. Uh, you know, I, I think we, we won't discount that, but I, I think the the real impact that they make is that um, businesses kind of integrate with them and then they they want to, you know, they don't want to do that every day. They, you know, they want to integrate once and then stay, stick with the company for a while. Yeah. So if you could just talk about the, um, the, the moat uh, into returns on capital. Uh, you talked about a few, few different... Uh, ratios we usually look at. Um, so if you could talk about that here. Yeah. So what we're going to talk about here is, um, you know, the, the traditional one is, is return on equity. Um, and their uh, return on equity for a business like this is based on the idea that, um, you know, you look at the assets and the liabilities and the difference between that is what the, the owners of the business actually own of the assets. And, um, you know, they have an equity base of about 665 million. Um, <clears throat> and it was about 600 million in 2018. The return that they saw was, um, you know, they took a significant nosedive in 28 from 2018 to 2019. Um, net income went from 165 to 59 million. 
Um, but even so, their return on capital there is, you know, went from um, about 20 plus percent, you know, I'm sorry, return on equity went from 20 plus percent to, uh, you know, around, um, you know, it, it, hold on, what? I'm uh, sorry, 30%, it got halved to 15%. Um, and, you know, but when you start looking at it in the return on capital employed, so return on capital employed is is a better metric for a business like this because it's talking about how much capital do they actually need in their business to make it run. And when you look at a business like this, <clears throat> you know, they have a asset base of, uh, so return on capital employed is total assets minus current liabilities. Um, and what you see here is that, you know, they had 900 million in assets. Um, and, you know, when you subtract out the current liabilities, you get about um, 720 million or so. Um, so it's it's roughly the same as their equity base. But I, I think the thing that we see there is they have a large component of their asset base is based on goodwill. Um, and goodwill is, you know, the, the price above the equity base that they paid um, for purchasing a business is considered goodwill. And that, that goodwill is not really contributing to their business in, in the, the way that it is uh, being employed to actually run the business. Um, and so a lot of people will, will take out the goodwill because it will be amortized away over time. Um, so, you know, if you, if you do subtract out the goodwill and, you know, uh, use some percentage of their cash is actually needed and the rest is excess cash, um, I'm going to just leave the cash alone. You know, that number goes from 720 million down to about 300 million. So they have a very, very high return on capital in, in you know, f almost 50%. Um, so anyway, pretty much however you slice it, they're, they're doing pretty well there. Um, you know, they don't have a whole lot of long-term debt. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I, you know, it went was 50 million in 2018. It's zero in 2019. Um, you know, and they, they lease an office building, which I'm not, you know, it was like $11 million. So it's not really significant there. So I, I don't see the, um, I don't see there being a big, you know, jump that uh, to be gained here by having more asset, you, you know, it's, you know, by, uh, you know, well, I'll, I'll just say it this way. It's a very high return on capital business, but, <laughs> but, but what I, what I'm concerned about is that return is going to be a lot lower than it used to be in the past because their special deal with the U.S. Postal Service is now uh, is gone. Yeah, I mean you're you're effectively talking about a capital base of three hundred three hundred million dollars in the business that are actually being employed and, and required to run the business. Right. And then it's generating what? It's generating. You said at its peak, they in twenty eighteen they generated uh, EBIT of uh, two hundred million. Uh, almost 200 million, and in 2019 that was 93 million, so it got cut in Excellent. half. So, yeah. um, you know, when we look at return on capital employed, we generally use EBIT instead of net income, and you know, um, that number is much, you know, much higher uh, in their case. You know, so I mean, I, I think any way you slice it, there you're you're getting a pretty good deal here. Yeah, just a really quick question on um, on the revenue. Because we did notice a significant drop, like you said, in 2018, because of the USPS deal fell kind of fell through. 
Do you know what percentage of the business is using the USPS? Well, so so I'll give you the numbers. The top line in 2016 was 350. In 2017, it was 449. 2018, it was 567. And then, I'm sorry, uh, what I was reading you was the the non-customized post uh, revenue. I'll give you their total revenue. 364, 468, 586, and then 571. So, um, you know, it took a small haircut, like 2 or 3% in uh, 2019. Um, but the big, big story here is that their cost of revenue went up from 126 million to 155 million, even though their revenue went down. Um, and then all of their categories for expenses also increased, uh, partly because they bought a company, um, Metapack, um, you know, which has lower margins, um, which affected their margins on their business. So it's we're not comparing apples to apples anymore um, either. But R&D expenses went up. Um, general and administrative expenses went up. And, you know, so that effectively halved their EBIT from 2018 to 2019. Does the company does the company report uh, the revenue segmented by USPS or you know, different partnership deals? Um, it, they may in the back. I did not look um, for that um, when I looked at it. I, I spent most of my time on the financial side um, looking at their total company revenues, but that would actually be an interesting thing to to look at. Yep. Okay, great. So, what? However, however way you want to slice this. Slice this. You're talking about a very high return on capital company here. Yeah, uh, and, and, and this. Look, I, I think I'm I'm going to clarify something that I said um, because I did make a mistake here because I was looking at EBIT and net income. So on their return on equity side, for 2019, uh, net income was 59 million. The equity base was 665. So actually, their return on equity was about 10 percent um, uh, for that year. Um, versus 168 over 613 million the year before. So it was almost 25, uh, more than 25% the year before. So it took a huge hit there, um, but the return on capital employed is still very high. So, um, but again, we're going to be as conservative as we can. And, you know, I I think there's going to be some integration headaches um, because of they they bought the meta pack and they're going to try and expand the margins there. Um, So I'm still kind of on the sidelines with this business as far as, what is 2020? What is 2021 when there's less COVID impact and so on? Yeah, sounds good. Um, let's move on to the next question. Does the company have enough cash to maintain its business? So, yeah. So this is this is kind of you know tightly coupled to the next question, which is the com- does the company maintain reasonable debt level? Yeah. So. so- Cash. You want to take that one? Yeah, pretty much cash is solid at 156 million and no debt. So, you know, their current liabilities is uh, 184 million, but their total uh, current assets is 274. So, you know, they have a current ratio uh, greater than one, which is what our cutoff would be to to be concerned. And, um, you know, no long term debt to speak of. So, um, not not too concerned about. Uh, cash here. Mm, I see. Great. Uh, and then the last question under financial, which is, can the company generate a strong amount of free cash flow from operation? So talking about free cash flow, at the very bottom of the financial statement, cash flow statements, what do you see there? Yeah. So I mentioned that the net income was 59 million and 2018, it was 168. So 
the interesting thing about their business is that they have a much higher cash flow, uh, net cash flow out with almost no expenditures um, relative to their net income. So they have a high uh, expense related to share, um, uh, you know, share uh, dilution expenses. So share-based compensation. Um, and so in 2018, their net cash flow from operations was $276 million. Uh, and in 2019, that was 137 million. So they generate, relative to their asset base, yes, they generate a nice free cash flow number. Um, but when we talk about the valuation relative to their market cap, it is not uh, not a great you know uh, ratio. Interesting. So yeah, free cash flow of even with the drop, you're talking about 134, 135 million. Right with the asset asset base of three hundred, yep. That's a that's a really nice ratio right there. Yeah, I, I mean the numbers certainly are in your favor um, from a business standpoint, but I I think the bigger risk here is, you know, what is their earnings power going forward? Right, it, it's cheap, you know, to get into this business. You know, it doesn't require a lot of assets, uh, and it generates a nice return. But where is the uh, you know, are they now going to become more of a commodity business going forward? Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting that's an interesting question. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about that in the, fo- in the following segments segments here. Yep. So let's move on to this to the next question. Next bundle of question under management. Is the management properly incentivized to protect shareholders interests over its own? Is there any red flags in terms of management and their incentive structure here? Um. So let's talk about that a little bit here. Um, you know, they've, they, the way that they base their compensation is off of, um, they do a survey of companies with a similar size uh, to theirs via market, by market cap. So market cap for them was, uh, the range that they used was companies that were between a billion and $3 billion in market cap. And their share-based compensation, or I'm sorry, their cash-based compensation for base salary was in the 95th percentile for their CEO. So, um, you know, if you were thinking about this in 2018 and you looked at their CEO, who's been there for a long time, um, he, he's been with the company since 2001 um, in the CFO role, and then he transitioned to the CEO role, uh, but he's always been on the board. Um, <clears throat> he's getting $888,000, which is... is about 10% of his total, um, I'm sorry, that's, uh, the total compensation for the executive team is about eight to $12 million, depending on, uh, two factors, which are revenue and EBITDA. Um, and so they, they, those are the two metrics that they use. And, um, they essentially slashed their, um, payouts because of COVID. Um, and they said if they hit certain targets, they'll get, um, certain, um, compensations packages. Um, and the, the variance is between eight and $12 million uh, for those. It's interesting because, you know, Charlie Munger talks about this. Show me incentive. I'll show you results. Yep. And when you're seeing, when you see the incentive structure here, you're talking about revenue and EBITDA. Yep. But then this company, what is, what is shockingly good about this company is, is the operational efficiency. Right, you're you're seeing you're seeing what, um, basically capital employed to free cash ratio of of, of two, 
um, it, it's I mean, it's it's a very nicely greased machine in terms of operational efficiency standpoint. Um, but if I look at the re if I look at the incentive structure, it doesn't really point in that direction. So it's interesting to me these the differences here. Yeah. So I I mean I I think they are trying to do the right thing with revenue and EBITDA. And as you've heard me say before, EBITDA um, is kind of a BS metric. In their case, amortization is a is a is a non cash expense. Um, you know, it is what they mark on the income statement, and it doesn't affect their free cash flow. That's why their free cash flow is so much higher than their net income. Um, and depreciation, they don't have money assets, so EBITDA is, is most likely going to still be um, similar to their free cash flow. But the interesting thing about this is they're spending heavily on sales and marketing to increase their revenue, right? So obviously the revenue growth is where they're trying to target. And to me, that that kind of says, are you going to cut off your nose here to spite your face, right? In, in order to expand your revenue, but it may not be the best margin revenue that you're going to get. And I don't know that that's the case. I'm just, you know, that's just an observation that I'm having with, with this is that you're spending more money on sales and marketing, right? You're spending more money basically across the board. You bought a business in Metapack that has lower margins, right? To, to kind of add to your, um, your growth. And I, I, I want to, I want to make one thing clear too. That's, that's part of this is their 2018 revenue does not include the Metapack acquisition. 2019 does. So the, you know, from a, Overall basis, their their revenue actually, you know, from an organic basis, declined significantly, right? Mm. And then they bought Metapack to just kind of now it looks flat, even though that was mostly because they acquired the Metapack business. So yeah, <clears throat> it's it's interesting. It's interesting to think about this incentive question from the perspective of what is happening to the company. What is happening to the companies effectively is that their revenue potential is going down and people know that. And I think executives and the chair and the board know, recognizes that there's a lot of competition out there. And so I would, I would suspect that they are placing incentive structure to increase revenue to counter that force, despite the fact that it might counter the well-greased machine that they have created. But I also wonder the incentive structure before the U U uh, USPS deal uh, fell through, yeah, you know? like were they were they incentivized to build this well greased machine, very capital efficient machine before, and then now that the revenue potential revenue potential is, is kind of going down, the top line is going down, the the board decides to decides to change up the incentive structure so that uh, so that the top line top line can grow. Yeah, and I I think there's a couple things here that I want to mention that. I am not going to say that they are doing that intentionally. I, I mean, I, I think they are. The intent here is to leverage up a little bit, and then deleverage as the you know as the sales and marketing effort grows, and so that's how they're kind of counteracting the loss of the USPS special package deal, right? Um, so, <laughs> getting a getting an amber alert yes sorry about on that. your phone <laughs> I, I am uh, and i had another phone in here that went off first so uh, yeah. anyway the 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 point of this is is to say 
I'm not going to read too much into this incentive structure. I'm going to spend more time thinking. I, 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 there's a lot of uncertainty to me in how this business is going to come back after losing the U.S. Postal Service special um, package incentive uh, payment. So um, let's see. Let's let's keep moving on. Sure. Yep. Fair. Fair points. Okay. Let's move on to the next question. Um, buybacks or dividends? Um, uh, any comment there? No dividends. Sixty million dollars authorized in the buyback. Um, they're essentially using the buybacks to offset share dilution um, from share-based compensation. I, I mean, I I don't think it's a material buyback program. Um, it would be an interesting thing for them to initiate one, um, but I I think they feel like they can leverage up, and that's why they're investing, um, you know, into a higher headcount and so forth. So. Hard to tell. Hard to tell for me that they're really doing much with my capital because I think they have a high return and they want to invest in it in into the it. company. Makes sense. Uh, last question: management, open and honest. It's this one's a hard one. Yeah, I don't see any red flags there. Okay. All right. Let's move on to the the, the last segment of the checklist, which is valuation. So take us through your assumptions. Uh, and your margin of safety, the whole nine yards. Yeah, so, I mean, I'll, I'll spoil it right now and say this thing is too expensive. Um, but I, let me let me walk through my assumptions first on and justify that because, you know, the cash flow basically got cut in half between 2018 and 2019. And, you know, the projections that they have for their incentive structure are basically revenue is flat uh, due to COVID. Um, <clears throat> so... If we start with an initial cash flow of what their numbers were like in 2018, which I think is being extremely generous to the company, um, you can get them, you know, and a growth rate of 15%, um, a discount rate of 10%, and then in year six through 10, we're going to say that they cut their growth rate by half to 8%. I can arrive at a uh, intrinsic value of $387 and a margin of safety of 193. So those are very, very generous assumptions, right? But if we look more like the assumptions that I think are going to be more um, reasonable for a company like this, you know, I, I'm going to go look at something like closer to, um, you know, 150 million in free cash flow. But I'm going to try and keep the growth rates. Um, you know, I, I think it's probably more likely to say like, you know, a, a number closer to like 10% or 12% for um, for their growth rate for the first five years. And I get a, a margin of safety price of around $95 and an intrinsic value of $191. You know, so it, it's hard for me to justify the business. You know, they have great returns on capital. They have a lot of things, but I, I, I mean, those growth rates to me are being generous, right? I think they lost a big business, a big book of business in 2018 um, to 2019. And I think that it's going to be hard for them to recover. The MetaPack business is going to be an interesting thing to see if they can get the growing, the, you know, the gross margins up. Uh, and I want to see how the, the company leverages up, um, you know, or they've levered up. Now, how does it deleverage um, when the R&D effort, the increased headcount, how does that impact them going forward? So 
I am not putting them on the watch list necessarily, but I think that they may be in a like an intermediate category where this could be a very interesting business, and I may want to look at them again next year, um, see how they do during COVID, see how they do during, um, you know, this transition period away from, uh, you know, more to, you know, they don't have the special deal in place anymore, and let's see what 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 they look like. Yeah, certainly, there's a lot of uncertainty around the business right now because obviously the COVID nineteen for all businesses, but especially this one with the fact that they lost major source of revenue in 2018 and they're really trying to figure out how to grow their business again. Um, so a lot of uncertainty, but also the bright side is that there's a very well run company. Again, the, you know, the, the capital efficiency is very, very high. Um, for me though, it, for me though, Hari, I think it goes back to the, the fundamental of this analysis, which is, which is competitive advantage. And I think you nailed it in the head. They're kind of a com- commodity business at this point. And so thinking about it from the long-term perspective, perhaps for me at least, it's not something like you said on my radar, but certainly it could be a very interesting play in a more of a cigar butt type kind of play when the stock price actually goes down even further from here. Yeah, I mean, in December, I think you could have bought this company at around under a hundred dollars a share. Um, and that was right after they announced the postal service stuff and things like that. So, you know, they took a big haircut then. So right now, I don't know if that's the same, you know, it, you know, at $200 a share, there's too much, you know, it's a speculative business at this point, right? I don't know what the future is going to hold. It's not a compounding machine. It's not anything like that. Um, and they made an acquisition that, you know, lowered their margins and maybe they're going to be able to integrate it well. Um, but it's in a market that is not as familiar territory to them, um, in Europe. And so, you know, what is that going to look like? I don't know, you know, and, um, you know, I, I tend, tend to want to look at businesses like when we talked about visa, right? Visa is everywhere you want to be essentially, right? That's their, their tagline. And you know that even in a COVID crisis, Visa is going to do fine, right? No matter what what you throw at Visa, they're going to be okay, right? I mean, they basically have an impenetrable moat. Here, I, I, I see this as more of commoditized business. They don't have a low-cost solution anymore that they can offer. And so now they're competing on feature set, which is still, I think, is an advantage for them. But I don't know that it's enough of an advantage that... Um, you know, they're just going to be looking at lower margins, uh, lower return on capital going forward. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Thanks for uh, covering all of that, Tari. I think it was a interesting company for sure. Something to, you know, interesting exploration of the space for me. I didn't really know about the space at all. At all. Um, so thank you for going through that. Awesome. Um, so that was uh, stamps.com. Um, again, as I said in the earlier, uh, earlier part of the episode, this was a company that was suggested to us by one of uh, you guys, our listeners. So if you guys have a company that you want us to analyze, email us at info at valueinvestor.org. We'd be happy to take a look. Yeah. And also, um, if you want to interact with us on, uh, on our Slack channel, um, you know, send an email info at valueinvestor.org. Um, you can send us, um, uh, you know, talk to us in real time. 
get the the checklist um you know ask becco for dating advice whatever you want uh info at valueinvestor.org so uh <laughs> awesome awesome all right uh, oh and and you can also send uh becco comments about the beard too um so <laughs> awesome great uh thanks a lot thanks you guys uh thanks a lot for uh, joining us i hope you guys hope you guys uh stay safe out there um and uh we'll see you on the next episode Thanks.